You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Doug Mensch, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Master of Kung Fu, Episode 1, Part 2, Episode 1B, covering a period of uh, Master of Kung Fu from 1974 to 1977. I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your co-host, Jason Schaff. And we're going to be covering Master of Kung Fu, Issues 22 to 28, Giant-sized Master of Kung Fu, Issues 2, 3, and 4, and finally, a little section of Iron Man Annual number 4. I really liked our conversation last week when we talked about the first half of this book. I I found it very, very interesting to just uh, unpack the way Shang-Chi works, the the cultural impact, and uh, I just want to make a, a brief note because between recording last week and this week, I talked to Doug Mensch, and if you listen to last week's episode, you'll hear uh, that I put in some of those Doug Mensch interview clips. We had talked of wondering what the cultural impact was in Britain as far as Master of Kung Fu is concerned, and I have a little clip of Doug talking about it uh, just very briefly, but he does mention it. Excellent. Yeah, last week's conversation was very, uh, was very interesting. Um, and I'm glad that I'm glad you were able to add an Asian voice into the proceedings. Um, so I think that that helps give a little perspective into this. And today, yeah. when we talk, we're going to be talking about the evolution of the character away from, um, for lack of a, of, of a better term, the kind of fortune cookie um, vision of Asianness into something that is more third, three dimensional, much more flushed out. And motivated by more than just following your uh, your path, uh, for lack of a better term. That is interesting to see that evolution toward the end of this volume. I like how they've divided these epic collections up so that the end of this volume is right on the cusp of a very, very, very significant change for Master of Kung Fu. And it's that, mm. that picks up at the beginning of the next volume. So uh, we won't get into that particular thing uh, in this episode, we'll have to say that for the next one, but that's very interesting. Yeah, the next one, starting with issue 29 of Master of Kung Fu, does get uh, a very specific sort of uh, momentum behind it and pathway behind it that a lot of folks will say, who are very big fans of the series, will say, well, that's when the series really begins to shine. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot to love in this volume as well, and I'm sure you're oh, yeah. going to agree with me on that. Just in terms of the the influences from the Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movie, um, the lingering colonial vision of the East from the Fu Manchu stories of Sax Romer. And all that kind of fuses together with a sort of comic book aesthetic and mentality uh, for, for some really promising stories. Well, I don't have any uh, any comments because we we dealt with all of that in the previous episodes, so I think we can just kind of 
uh, go right into what we need to go into here. Right on. Starting with issue number 22, Master of Kung Fu number 22. This one's called A Fortune of Death. And it's brought to you by uh, the, the regular team here of Doug Mensch, Paul Galassi, and Dan Adkins. We never talked about Dan Adkins as the inker for this book, for, for Paul Galassi's artwork in the last episode. And I think it's uh, maybe we should spend a little bit of time here because I'm always interested in inkers and the way that they affect um, the look of the book and the way it appears. And Dan Adkins is a really, really great inker. And he adds a lot to make this book stand out. Um, A lot of his dark shadows, a lot of the, the action lines that you see, um, when, whenever, you know, Kung Fu, whenever, uh, Shang-Chi is hitting somebody, you always get these great, um, effects lines that, that really add the dynamic look to it. And everyone, every anchor attacks these in a different way, but Dan Atkins has a very classic style to his work and it comes off really, really well. I think that if, and, and let me see, I had an example of an issue that didn't have Dan Atkins inking Paul Galassi. And I forgot to write down which one that was. So maybe when we go further into it, I'll keep my eye on on who's inking and see if I can point that out. And then we'll do a little comparing of the two inking styles. If I were to build upon what you're saying, I'd say a really good example where shadows are being used incredibly effectively. I'd go to the bottom of page 225 in the last panel on that. We have Shang-Chi looking over his shoulder and oof, the mood that that image conveys, uh, in my opinion, it's very powerful. Yeah, and that one even is very different because a lot of the times the inking of the shadows doesn't include all of the feathering you can see on his mm-hmm. cheekbone. Dan Atkins will use a very, very solid style of uh, sh- shading. So if you look at the panel directly above it, the big panel where the guy's flying mm-hmm. out the window, and you look at all of the shading on the clothes, on the car, on the brick wall, on the fire hydrant, it's all solid shading. You don't get that same feathering. So that panel that you pointed out here at the bottom really stands out because it has a more realistic tone to it. Um, you know when you're watching Ren and Stimpy and you get the okay. close-up shots of the ultra-detailed painted background of like Ren's terrible teeth or something like that, right? <laughs> do you mm-hmm. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. Uh, those ones stand out because they're done in such a different style. And yeah. I think this, yeah. this one also stands out because it's a little bit of a different style uh, in order, like you said, to, to evoke a certain mood. It, it, yeah, it does look really cool. I, I like it a lot. And even, again, building on what you were saying in terms of the action lines, what Dan Atkins is adding into this is a real sense of the explosive power of the punches and kicks. Yeah. Uh, for example, again, if we look at the page opposite 224, um, all the all, all 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 the punches just have all these lines just flying off of them, and that combining with Gulacy's use of body and movement uh, really does convey some power um, into it. Yeah, so that middle tier where it's split into those four skinny panels, mm-hmm. all the the first three have the action lines because contact is made, and then the fourth one doesn't have the action lines because no contact is made. Yeah, yeah. So he definitely is emphasizing they're not there just to you know fill the background or to 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 make everything look exciting. It's like when you get punched in the head. At, have you ever been punched in the head, Jason? <laughs> Yeah, I, I used to do amateur boxing and football, so I've had my bell rung many a time. I only get it when my kids smack me with a toy or their 
wild limbs or whatever but you get that you get you get you get a hit right and you get that flash of white like the whole your whole mm-hmm. vision just totally goes white that's what i see whenever i see those action lines is something like that yeah a good uh, a good way to kind of envision it <laughs> how about i go over the story a little yeah, bit yeah let's here. do that yeah let's because the story. i love this this is one of my favorite issues of this um particular collection so <laughs> starts off shang chi goes to an asian restaurant um, and sure enough, it's the entire staff are going to be Kung Fu fighters of the Siphon. And this particular setup, first he fights a major assassin who is able to do the kind of flourishes with his sword. And Golasi is fantastic on page 220, where you see this, this fella kind of disrobing as he's getting ready to, to engage. It kind of really builds up. Um, to use a wrestling term, puts this guy over as he's going to be a major threat. And of course, we get the fight. But what I love is when the entire wait staff is revealed to also be Psy fan fighters. And one of the fun things about it is the facial expressions of these guys. And one in particular is just always smiling and always polite. As <laughs> he's now, That's the reason right. why this tickles tickles my funny bone is because, again, I'm, I'm a fan of those Shaw Brothers kung fu films. Yeah. Um, I used to watch them all the time on Saturday mornings when I was a kid. And then proceed to try to uh, challenge my older brothers with what I thought I had just learned. <laughs> Speaking of getting punched in the head. Um, and this is something you oftentimes see. Where it's fun fights. Um, it's, it's The fights use humor as a means to tell the story. And that's exactly what this particular fight is doing. Even when we see some of the action taking place, like on 222, you see like the, 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 the plates getting crushed, the people's faces, and then the guy finally flying out the window. It's a means of telling, um, telling the story through humor, but also through the action, which I think is fantastic. It is a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. Um, eventually, though, we do pick up onto the main story, <laughs> and that is when he's approached by Black Tar and Neil and Smith, and they are given kind of a, I guess, a mission to go and check out a secret base of Fu Manchu. The plot, of course, is foiled, but the last page of it is fantastic because you see what this plot actually entailed, and it was going to be to blow up uh, Mount Rushmore. Uh, So on page 234, you see a little bit of smoke coming up from right between where Teddy Roosevelt and Abe Lincoln's head is. fun issue really it tells a great story it tells a great story of great action and even that back page just kind of shows the diabolical nature of fu manchu where he wants to strike a heart a blow into the heart of america and what makes america america by taking out mount rushmore yeah i found it so so odd that especially uh Naylan smith well maybe not because he's british but it's like how could you not know that you're in the vicinity of mount rushmore <laughs> it's like that's it's one of the, the most iconic things about the United States of America, and you've got to know that you're like somewhere near it, <laughs> even if you're in a cave that's you know behind it. Uh, yep. <laughs> but, but I love it. It was a great. It was a great last page reveal, and I can only imagine that uh, the, the the way the epic collection has it laid out is you flip the page and you get to see Mount Rushmore. So you don't get it spoiled for you by having it being on the right. And mm-hmm. uh, I would hope that the ad placement in the original issue would would allow that same surprise. You flip over the page and you see Mount Rushmore. Gosh, I don't know. I didn't read this one on uh, <laughs> in, that, in that format. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's hard to say. 
it is hard to say. I'm sure somebody out there has the original can tell us, but that's that's something that I love when whenever I see the big splash page, I always in the epic collections, I always hope um, that uh, you know the the just the coincidence of the page layout would allow the surprise when you turn the page because a lot of the artists put that specific surprise like that or the the writers do mm. so that when you turn the page you get like the the huge splash page where it's the big reveal it needs to be on the left yeah um, okay if you go to page two thirty two which is the third to last page in this issue the very bottom panel here when when Shang Chi is diving for the, for the gunpowder to, to stop the fuse. Mm -hmm. I love the extreme perspective on this panel. And Galassi does this kind of thing a lot where he plays with, um, with, the, with the perspective. So his hand is really large in, in this panel here because it's just more far forward. It's, it's very exaggerated. And the way that, that Shang-Chi is kind of just twisted in the air, I love it. It's so dynamic, and it's just not what you would see from like John Buscema. He would never do something like this, um, but yeah. it, it works we'll really some, well. We'll get some Buscema um, in his take in a bit. Yes, but yeah, and even the way the curvature of the cave is is shown, and that almost works with the curvature of uh, uh, of Shang Chi's body. It does. It, kind of it all works to draw gets your a good eye. Flow. Yeah, it flows. It flows all of it through the fingertips of Shang Chi all the way to pointing to the gunpowder. Like the whole panel draws your eye right down to that bottom left corner. It's very well done. Mm. Yeah, Galacy, I can't say enough about this guy. I have to try to keep myself on point by not um, <laughs> waxing poetic <laughs> on every panel that he does. At the very beginning, I love how they address um, Shang-Chi going into a Chinese restaurant and experiencing American Chinese. I thought that mm -hmm. was kind of a cool touch. Um, and I can relate to that too, because while I am Chinese, um, I, well, well, half Chinese, I've grown up here and not really, I, I've been to Hong Kong and experienced um, Hong Kong and Chinese culture there. And it's so interesting going into a Chinese restaurant in actual China <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, going to an American Chinese restaurant and ordering your sweet and sour pork. <laughs> it's, I've heard the cuisine's quite different too, isn't it's, it? It's very, very different. And it's wonderful if people get the chance to experience it. I love it. I think it's, I think I love experiencing new foods and different, different cultures' oh, yeah. foods. It's just such a great experience. But American and Canadian Chinese restaurants are uh, just very watered, watered down. Mm. It's probably the same way with any cultural restaurant in America. Um, they have to play to their specific audience, I guess, or, uh, or clientele, I guess. <laughs> well, having, having gone to British restaurants, as long as they can stick to the shepherd's pie, we'll be okay, because <laughs> British food and Irish food are born out of desperation uh, more than anything else. Right. So... <laughs> <laughs> So the the action of this the action of this issue starts on page nine when Shang Chi and Dennis Nayland uh, meet up. Mm -hmm. and the the first eight pages, while the, the the fight is extremely fun, is completely pointless. It could be yeah. removed from the story, and and you know not you, you wouldn't you wouldn't even know that uh, anything happened. Um, <laughs> very interesting that he, I guess I don't know if he just had half of an idea. And he just said, uh, okay, Paul, I need you to just do enough fighting to fill up the page count. <laughs> well, I think, kind of like I was saying before, I think that this is an homage to those Shaw Brother films where you do get these random fights in 
places that make no sense to have fights, but they're there anyway, and everybody knows kung fu, <laughs> and, and it's really visual and spectacular. spectacular yeah, to see. and I have no 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 problem with that, but I'm surprised that they didn't leave that for the fight that happens later on in the cave, mm-hmm. because they could have easily done it there. I mean, these issues in the 70s are only 17 pages anyway. The, the page count had been reduced at this point. So we're filling literally half the book with a fight that doesn't have any bearing on the actual story. Yeah. But it's okay. We don't notice because it's a fun fight. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Well, maybe we should go on to the next issue here. Giant Size Master of Kung Fu number two, The Devil Doctor's Triumph. This one is split into four parts. So unlike the first Uh, issue of Giant Size that had multiple stories. This one is one big story split into four chapters. And I'll give you a brief recap of each of these chapters here. Chapter one, Shang-Chi meets a girl and falls for her. In chapter two, Shang boards a plane to Peking, but all the passengers happen to be assassins. That is a fantastic chapter. (laughs) Wonderful. Chapter three, Shang fights a million zillion assassins to find the scientist that he must protect from Fu Manchu. Turns out the girl he met in the first chapter is the scientist's daughter. Mm-hmm. And in chapter four, Shang-Chi goes through a death trap. Fu Manchu wants to know the scientist's secret, which we'll get into when we talk about that chapter. Um, this, I, I really like this. This whole thing was, uh, was a great wild ride. <laughs> a lot of fun. Oh, this is fantastic. Very, issue. very, very cool stuff that goes on uh, visually. Again, I'll, I'll gush over Paul Galassi's <laughs> artwork over and over again in this one. In fact, um, I want to play a clip of Doug talking about how he worked with Paul Glacey and talking about some of his techniques. So I'll slip that in here. How'd that start? Well, I went in, I, I wandered into Marv Wolfman's office one day. Marv had uh, been an editor at Warren at Creepy Eerie and Vampirella. That's how we got to know each other before he moved to Marvel he says he's, or he doesn't say, neither one says, but I got the impression that Marv is the one who suggested me to Roy Thomas when Roy said, oh, we're going to start this whole line of black and white things and we need a lot more writing, right? Right. And I assumed that Marv suggested me because he'd been my editor on the creepy eerie stuff. I did an, I just did a long interview, oh, it was a couple of years ago now, for uh, Roy's magazine Alter Ego, right? And I said that in the interview, and he sent me an email saying, well, I always thought it was my idea to call you, not Marv's, but if that's the, maybe I'm wrong. So now I don't know who, like, (laughs) I thought it was Marv because he was editing this stuff. Roy thought it was him just reading this stuff in the Warren mags. I don't know. But anyway, um, so I was already acquainted with Marv, and he was the one I sort of hung around with the most because I already knew him. So I went into his office, and there's this stack of artwork uh, on a side table. He was, I guess, in charge of talent scouting uh, prospective artists, right? Uh, Or at least he was the first guy to go through the stuff and pull out what he thought was worthy of further scrutiny and give it to Roy or whoever. And so I I always used to go through the the stacks of artwork and see if there was anything exciting. And I came across this stuff pretty crudely drawn, but I loved the storytelling because the storytelling was my favorite kind of storytelling, which is the kind of Jim Steranko, Will Eisner storytelling, right? Okay. 
Uh, Bernie Krigstein at EC Comics did it a little bit, too. Um, I also love the very straightforward storytelling of Karl Barks and Milton Kniff, but I like the gimmicky Will Eisner, Steranko kind of thing. When you say that, are you talking about um, the the way, like the panel layouts and the way they, yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay. I call I call it sequential storytelling, and a good way to describe it is it's the kind of storytelling where you could figure out roughly what's going on without the words. Okay. You can, you know, it tells, it tells the story in a sequence of pictures and sometimes you don't need words at all, at least for brief periods of time. And to me, that's the best kind of uh, visual storytelling, comic book storytelling. Um, Later on, I couldn't understand when the most popular comic artists, you know, guys like Jim Lee and and uh, Todd McFarlane and so on, are very, very, very good artists, no doubt about it. But uh, our Rob, what was that guy's name? Rob something. Liefeld. A- anyway, yeah, Rob Liefeld. I would look at their stuff and I said, oh, okay, I could see why uh, they're popular. It, they have this very dynamic way of drawing the the superhero figure and so on. But this is like, this is terrible storytelling. I can't even tell where, whatever is happening here. First of all, I can't tell what's happening. Second of all, I can't tell where it's happening. Hmm. Am I indoors or outside? I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> right. it's like, it's like pinup shots, you know, one after another. And, but that became briefly the, the hot style. Um, but it's, my favorite is the kind where you don't need any words to tell you what's going on or where you are. And so I saw this and I thought, wow, I, oh man, I got to write a story for this guy. You got to use this guy, Marv. We got to, we got to hire him to do some, uh, an actual story for Marvel, you know, some black and white story. I'll do it for him. Tryout story, whatever. Marv just looks at me. I, you know, I'm gushing over this with the enthusiasm, blah, blah, blah. He lets me go for five or ten minutes, and then he finally says, uh, I've already sent him a script. Uh. And I go, ah. <laughs> ah, well, I wanted to be, and he said, well, go home and write one for him. It'll be his second one, you know. So I, I did. It was uh, called Bets, and it was uh, a silent story. It had, uh, it had a couple of words like signs, but no other words in it whatsoever except the title. And it wasn't very long. It was like five or six pages. But anyway, the artist was, ta-da, Paul Galassi. Right. And and his very crude drawing style improved really quickly. I mean, you know, you could... You could tell that this guy really had genuine talent and he just needed practice and the practice was just doing pages, you know, and every page he got better and better and better. I mean, he reached a plateau, of course, as everyone does. But, uh, yeah, I I always felt like uh, me and Galassi were a synergy, a fancy word meaning greater than the sum of its individual parts. Right. Like, uh, this is more than me and Galassi. This is me and Galassi, which is a whole third thing or a fourth thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, better than just my words combined with his pictures. It's It becomes uh, inseparable because I think we we sort of understood each other, you know, we were on the same wavelength, however you want to describe it. Right. Now I've worked, you know, I've had great partnerships with other artists, um, but none 
where who seemed so sympathetic and in tune um so yeah we and i used to write specifically for that kind of storytelling style and i would say most of the time gee he just stubbornly didn't do it but (laughs) then he would do that but then he would do that storytelling style in a different sequence three pages later right where i hadn't done it just to you know show show that i couldn't boss him totally right (laughs) yeah so it's like uh, uh, all right we we were we were like an old married couple. We had arguments all the time, but ended up loving <laughs> each other when it was done. That's fantastic. I'd love to know if Galacy was a fan of the um, of the genre, the kung fu movie genre. I, I, I suspect he was just by the um, the way the, the the figures are drawn. Um, but it'd be great to hear, uh, hear hear from him. Yeah, and I plan on trying to reach out to Paul. I know he does interviews because I've heard some of him before over on the Comic Shenanigans podcast. And so I will reach out to him to see if I can get an interview when we tackle Volume 2, which is kind of, I think, Paul Galassi's even better work than here. He, he dramatically oh, yeah. improves throughout the course of his run on this book. Especially when you get Galassi inking his own work. Uh, that's what really um, stands out. Yeah. Okay. What do you want to say about the story in this in this issue? Oh boy. <laughs> um, this is another one of these these issues where I got to kind of uh, almost edit what I want to say about it because I could gush on it <laughs> for a while. <laughs> I mean, right off the bat, the opening opening pages are fun. Where you got some, uh, I guess he must be drunk because of the slur sort of in the speech. Yeah buffoon that shang chi just meets out on the streets and doesn't even beat him up unless a guy beat himself up sort of but where i think this issue excels is when he meets with sandy and if we turn to page 243 where you see the first kiss and the the the, the minimalism used in the words yeah expression um the focus at the top of that page on the eyes the two eyes kind of coming together and then the lips eventually coming together Wow, that is some great romantic storytelling that you don't yeah. usually get in comic books. This whole page is just fantastic. Can I gush about this page a little bit? Oh, go on, please. Okay, so I, I love the, the mirror image of this top half where mm-hmm. where you see both of their eyes, both of their mouths, and both of their you know faces in, in the uh, in the vertical panel on the sides. And you you don't I think for this panel you're not supposed to read it left to right you're supposed to read it up like top to bottom mm. and so you're experiencing both the eyes at the same time and both the faces and both the lips at the same time to get to that panel that's kind of surrounded by all the rest of those panels the one where they're kissing and uh, and so I think that's a very cool technique one that uh, we don't I think you just subconsciously look at it top to bottom you don't even think about reading it left to right you kind of take in that whole section kind of all at once or at least I did what about you I certainly do as well and I like the 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 point you're making about the mirroring and if I could speak about the character of Sandy a little bit I love that she more than proves herself to be a good pairing for Shang-Chi. Number one, she kicks butt. She owns her own kung fu studio. Yep. On page 245 and 244 and 245, we hear beating up the Sai fan. But again, going back to 243, she's the one who initiates the romantic action. She's the one who says, essentially, kiss me. Um, and if we look at the 
after their lips meet the fourth set of panels down, you can see she's leaning into him as he's still this, I guess uh, we can maybe describe him still at this point as kind of an innocent. Um, but yet he or she is kind of bringing him into this new world of romance that he doesn't look all that comfortable with. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a little awkward for sure. And I think that, well, first of all, I love these tears, these four panels mm-hmm. uh, sorry this one tier these four panels here because it looks like the camera is moving to like it's panning over to the right mm-hmm. um, because the the panel the division of the panels make it seem like time is passing so the, the camera is, is, instead of making it one long panel which they could have done they've broken it up so it looks like we're panning over um, but yeah you're right we haven't seen any sort of romantic anything from Shang-Chi not even an inkling that he wants to be involved with anybody or has those desires um, this is new territory for him. And I don't know if that's because, does he does he mention, I can't remember now, um, like his upbringing didn't allow for that kind of thing um, or like the, just the way he is trained or the influence from his father meant that he's got to stay focused as an assassin. And I don't know if that's, I, I can't remember if that's actually said or if, um, if that's me imposing that if those those things on, on the situation here. But, but that's how I see this is like, he has never been given the opportunity to explore this at all. So even yeah. the way they're in the second uh, row there, if you look at them, where you have the mirroring going on, Shang Chi's body language—he almost looks nervous. His chin is kind of tucked down a little bit into his chest. Right. And if you contrast that to Sandy, her chin's up. She's very confident um, in what's about to come. You're talking about those two vertical panels at the top here. Mm-hmm. And then if you look yeah. at the ones with just the lips, Shang-Chi's head is tilted back as if he's moving away. And mm-hmm. her lips, her face is tilted forward as if, as if she's coming in. Mm. Fantastic stuff. It is. <laughs> Again, if we if we got to kind of, we'll get, I guess, to her fate in a bit. And it's going to be something that's going to haunt this series going forward. But again, if we want to talk about just the interesting use of panels, um, really close to this page, 247, we got the middle panels, which again is kind of blurring the lines of Shang-Chi or making contrasts between Shang-Chi and his father. We saw a similar effect in the Jim Starlin issue, the very first issue, mm-hmm. where they're, they're doing pretty much exactly the same thing, just showing that you know these two are cut from the same cloth, but they're not really cut from the same cloth, but they're, uh, these two are are uh, tied in a unique way because they are related. Very cool yep. stuff. Uh, the, the airplane fight is fantastic. <laughs> Love on page 252. Again, this is a Shaw Brothers kung fu film sort of, uh, sort of scene where at the bottom panel, you just have the guy who just looks like he's reading his newspaper. And then he throws that kick <laughs> and levels change. <laughs> Just as calm as anything, he still has the, the the book in front of him or the magazine in front of him. Yep. Um, wonderful, uh, wonderful stuff. Even the stewardess is involved in it. <laughs> I, and I just love the ridiculousness of it as well. He knew that there could possibly be an assassin on the airplane, but he never suspected that every single person on the airplane is an assassin. <laughs> Including the pilot. And he takes out all of them. <laughs> it's so, it's a gamble. so good. Yep. It's so to, wi- to wipe out the pilots, not knowing whether or not there's actually the real pilots still on board. Yeah. Which, luckily for him, they are. But, oh my goodness. Um, I think the when we get into part three, and he takes on the, the army, I suppose. Um, yeah. I love where he's using the nunchuck. 
and you see him kind of uh, uh, demonstrating the skill of the nunchucks, and that is taken right from Bruce Lee. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's almost like a direct lift off of, um, gosh, I'm, my mind's blanking on which Bruce Lee movie it is where he does with the, the nunchucks, but it certainly is paying homage to that. Yeah, this one was great. Just a million zillion inches. <laughs> so awesome. And um, and then if you go to the a little bit later on in here on page two sixty three, we meet the scientist. Um, what what is his name? Professor Chen, mm-hmm. and it happens to be the father of the girl, uh, of Sandra, and Doctor Professor Chen has the really really pale skin. And we were saying in the last episode how they had, up to this point at least, been re- uh, reserving the pale skin for bad guys. Yeah. And to, to denote like that these guys are actually evil. But this guy's not. Even the rescued flight crew has that sickly yellow sort of coloring to it. Yeah. Um, and then in contrast to that, Sandra has peach-colored skin, like Caucasian mm-hmm. skin, even though she is supposed to be the daughter of this Chinese guy. Yeah, and that's probably that's going to be a, a somewhat of a problem, I guess, going forward is, and, and we're going to see this a little bit later when we meet Shang-Chi's sister, is many of the artists don't know how to draw Asian women. Right. And if we look at her eyes, her eyes are rounded. She looks almost like Joan Collins, I would say, from the era. Hmm. in terms of if even how the, the hairstyle is. Um, and again, the coloration gives her blue eyes. Right. I don't think that that's meant to be truly blue eyes. I think it's just you know the, the, the blue that they use to note um, darkness um, or highlights of dark, dark coloring. Um, but yeah, hmm. that's, that's something we're going to see quite a lot. And even in the next volume when we meet with the big love interest um, of Shang-Chi's uh, run, Liko, Liko Wu, she also has has that same thing where they're just not very good at drawing um, Asian women. Yeah. It, it, maybe this is even more problematic that the idea of conveying beauty is through Caucasian-like features as opposed to Asiatic features. But Yeah, I think that they maybe the artists just don't know. Yeah, we'll give them credit do and say they don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more comfortable or I'll be happier with the issues going forward thinking that. Uh, okay, this amazing death trap in the last mm. chapter here. Holy cow. Just like, mm. how do, how does he get all of this, like the giant hourglass with the spikes at the bottom of it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Uh, he's, Fantastic. It, the, the strength that he must have in order to fall, to free fall straight down and then grab the spikes and stop himself from hitting the acid below mm-hmm. <laughs> and then throw himself up um, in the air to, to a platform above is just wow. That's some amazing core strength there that you've got. My goodness! They look at two sixty nine. That great pose. Yes. Um, I almost wish that there was less writing on this one, less of the of of, of the, the the box text, and it was just let the art kind of stand more on that. Yeah. So who's the who's the anchor for this one? Let me just check on this because. Um, uh, okay, Jack Abel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, so here, oh, this is Jack Abel. So let's let's backtrack a little bit and take a look at, so let's say, um, the very first page, the splash page. Uh, and we, so this is the one where uh, we see Shang-Chi in, um, talking to the, the guy who's drunk, stumbling out of the bar. And so I mentioned in the previous one that um, Dan Adkins uses a lot of thick shading mm-hmm. uh, but you can see here that jack abel has a lot of feathering in his in his uh work here 
let me see here the the clothes if mm -hmm. you look at the folds on the clothes a lot of feathering there um if you look at the shadow below below their feet there's a lot of feathering on that um, that is something that you didn't see in the Jack Abel stuff. Those would have all been kind of solid blacks. Yeah. And it gives it a, a different tone, I think. It doesn't look as stark, I guess, as black and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, if you go over to the, the panels that we were talking about before with, um, on page 243 with the, the mirroring images of the kiss, mm -hmm. so much feathering and so much detail there. And then, um... Uh, even with with uh, on the previous page on 242, the the shading on Shang, on uh, Fu Manchu's face or the bottom there with Sandra, it all it's it's very very consistently there, uh, whereas Dan Atkins wasn't going to do that kind of stuff. That's interesting you mentioned that because I always think of Jack Abel as a very heavy inker himself, but you're actually enlightening me once again, Curtis, with your um, <laughs> noting of, of differentials. Yeah, uh, it is. I, I, I love just looking at the different inking styles. So it's, it's always something that I'm trying to pay attention to. So when you were younger and you were reading comics for the first time, how much did you pay attention to inking? I didn't pay attention to it at all. Me too. It's something I've come to much later in my uh, return, I guess, to comic books. The thing that really pointed it out to me is I was a huge fan um, of Generation X in the okay. 90s, and Chris Pacello in particular is just fantastic. I loved him. And, uh, and then he went through sort of an evolution in his, his drawing style by the time uh, Generation X got to around issue number 25. And then Mark Buckingham stepped off of the book, who had been his consistent inker pretty much through all of his Marvel stuff, whether it was Ghost Rider 2099 or, or even before that with Shade the Changing Man. Mark Buckingham had been inking him consistently. And so I never really gave Mark Buckingham the same, like the credit for his hand in, in Chris's style. Mm. And then when Mark left and we got a new inker, I think it was Al Vey, um, all of a sudden, Chris's works look so different. I'm like, why the heck does this look so different? And then I realized, I realized at that point that is because somebody different was inking it. I started paying attention to things. And for the longest time, I was not a fan of Sal Buscema's artwork. I just thought he was just awful. Yep. And then I started to realize it's because I really actually didn't like the inking of Mike Esposito. And Sal is mm. actually awesome <laughs> when you see him with a different inker. I've had a, serious, a, a similar journey myself in that regards. Again, with Sal, Sal B. Because um, I was a huge Rom the Space Knight fan when I was a kid. Okay, I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't read Rom enough. And Sal did most of the work on Rom. Mm -hmm. And there was a stretch, and I, I, I'm not going to look it up, but there was a stretch where the inking, I didn't know it at the time. I thought, well, he's just paying attention, but he's just doing better work. But the inking really started bringing out so much shade and, uh, and texture to it. And then it, did, it, then it went away, and then Steve Ditko uh, took over. And I, I remember just noticing then this, this transition of, of art. And it was probably the first time I think I ever noticed a transition of art. And I couldn't understand it because I didn't really understand inking at the time. But now looking back on it, I'm like, well, that's what happened. Yeah. And you look at uh, like anything that Bill Sienkiewicz inks mm -hmm. has his very, very distinct hand in it. Or, or like, a, what's another one? Tom Palmer. You can definitely wow. see anytime Tom Palmer is an inker. 
because he adds so much to it. Uh, and you, can, you, you just have to contrast that with anything else the penciler does. Yeah, Klaus Janssen, um, in mm-hmm. my opinion, yeah. can turn anything. He could turn a, a three-year-old's drawing into a work of, of art, a masterpiece. Um, and we're going to see a little bit of him in a bit, uh, too, which is fantastic. Yeah, and or another one, another example is uh, if you look at the, the Fantastic Four issues around issue number 300, mm-hmm. where Sal Buscema is penciling, no, sorry, John Buscema is penciling, and Joe Sinnott is inking, but all of a sudden, John Buscema's work looks like Jack Kirby, mm-hmm. because Joe Sinnott, his inking style is a lot of the reason why Jack Kirby looks like Jack Kirby as well, or Jack Kirby's influence on, Sal Bus- or on Joe Sinnott meant that uh, when Joe went to ink somebody else's work, he put a lot of Jack Kirby-isms into it. So it, it's a, quite the contrast. Interesting. Um, if we can jump back into the issue. One yeah, we, thing we like better to do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to jump to is page 270. Okay. Where we got the maze. Oh, yeah. Uh, with littered bodies everywhere. Text that kind of wraps around the maze. What a fantastic way to tell a story without the story ending up getting redundant or boring. Um, it creates this fun visual. The action is certainly present there as we see all these knocked out people. But just the, the, the twisting ways in which this is presented, I think it's a fantastic storytelling. I don't think that you could have done it um, anywhere near as effective any other way. Um, because how do you draw a maze when you are looking at, a, you know, just over the shoulder of a person? You, mm-hmm. it, it would just look like a hallway. It would look like a hallway with a corridor or something like that. Like, you see that on page 271, that top panel. Mm-hmm. That's all you see of it. You don't get the sense of how many people are hiding around the corner. And if you had laid it out so that Shang was attacking these guys one at a time, it would have been extremely redundant because it would have just been, oh, and then another guy jumps out. Oh, and another guy jumps out at him. Oh, and another guy jumps out at him. And that would have been it. Yep. But instead you get... You you yourself get to experience the maze because the words are literally taking you through the path of the maze, of, of where Shang-Chi yep. was going. So you have to travel through here uh, the same way that Shang did. And how many people does he come across here? Uh, 8, 9, 11, um, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. There are 16 people here. You can't fit 16 fights on one page and do it effectively. So, mm-hmm. but here you do, you can, and he's and he did it. So it's just a really, really great way of of doing this, <laughs> and it looks it's cool. clever. It's simplistic. It looks great. It gives you flow, and it also kind of uh, it emphasizes also what's going on with Shang Chi at the time because he is under the effects of drugs. Yeah, he yeah, has the mimosa coming through him. So, like the cynic in me looks at page two seventy one. You see the corners of these walls. Why doesn't he just jump on the wall and run over it? Right. Well, probably because he's not making the best decisions right now. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, on the next page, we really get an idea of just how under the effects he is. Oh, man, what a, what a punch to the gut this is. Mm. And, and as the reader, we don't, also don't know if it's real or not. Uh, we're talking, yeah, about this vision of Sandra that comes in front of him, who's a, it's, it's a, you know, death face and it flashes mm-hmm. to be Sandra, and like, is, was it, is the illusion? Is this a hallucination or not? He ends up killing the skeleton. And punch that he gives that skeletal face. Yeah, the jaw just is is flying off. 
Um, the yep. head is cocked back in a bad. I mean, this is a punch that if it were delivered, that's a death blow. It is. Um, if that's a human, that's a death. You're gone. And so <laughs> we're, they're not going to be entirely clear about it at the end, but we're left with the idea, did he or did he not kill him or kill Sandra? And it seems pretty clear he did. Yeah, it was like, holy cow. That was that is just a, a great storytelling here to to introduce this aspect of of Shang's life at the beginning that he's never experienced and that he seems to really like and enjoy and then his father takes that away from him. Mm-hmm. He's just like gives him a little bit and takes it a bit takes it away, and uh, and that just goes to show again the just how awful of a of a guy Fu Manchu is to do this to his own son. And I, I think the the way they hammer this home too on the two seventy five you look at the top row of panels and they're kind of reflecting on sandra but the panel right before we see shang chi the lower half of her face is shattered like it's in a mirror yeah and that really ties us back to that image we saw before that skeleton's jaw essentially getting shattered right because it's the lower half of her face that gets shattered here like the like he's punched and she Mm. just yeah yeah that's very cool fantastic stuff yeah and, and this the anguish is gonna be something... in his face here there's just some good facial emotional um like glacy is is really good at his facial expressions and there's coloration differences here as well that haven't been um as pronounced in some of the others in other words they're using not only the golden sort of hue but they're also using a darker sort of brown to add even more shadows into the face yeah the colorist is um p goldberg um He's a good. He's doing some really pretty good work here. Another page where it shows off that I would say is um, when he first goes into the death trap. If you look at the top of page two sixty seven, um, where he stops himself from falling. You mentioned this before, but even if you look at how the coloring is used to even add more emphasis to the muscles without darkening them out with the inks, yeah, um, it creates right. kind of an interesting, interesting sort of look to the musculation of him. As a giant size issue, second one, they also added a yellow claw um, story into it. Um, so we kind of talked about that in the last episode. Um, and again, David Wu made his appearance, <laughs> or second appearance in, in uh, Master of Kung Fu. Jimmy Wu? Yeah, Jimmy Wu. That's right. Jimmy Wu. Um, so he was there. Uh, this is kind of one throwaway story. So it's a reprint of an older one from the 1950s. So at the at the end of this issue, it says the little next caption box says "Next issue, Yellow Claw." Enough said. <laughs> but that never happens. No, I, I, the only thing I can think of is it referring to the, the reprint. Final part, the, um, yeah, the final part of the of the giant size Master of Kung Fu. But it's weird that they would say next issue. He's not in giant size number three. No, he's not. And um, he's not in. Master of Kung Fu 23. I wonder if they had plans to do Yellow Claw, but someone squashed those plans. Maybe maybe they were going to do that and then because there's a three-month gap, lots of time to change their mind over what's going to happen in the next issue. Maybe Doug put a stop to it or I don't know. Yeah. But it would be interesting to see since Yellow Claw is kind of a Fu Manchu type character to, to see both of those characters appear in the same story, kind of fighting over territory or, or you know, because they're probably maybe after the same thing. <laughs> or they, they, yeah. they, I could easily see them as adversaries. Fu Manchu. And the Mandarin and, also would have been a fun addition yeah. in some way. Yeah, they could have had all three of them going at it t- together <laughs> or forming an alliance. Oh, it would be fantastic. I'm surprised <laughs> that in the, in the later um, appearances of Shang-Chi, the post-Master of Kung Fu run that, they didn't lean into um, 
one or both of those characters. But I guess the Yellow Claw has pretty much been exiled from Marvel. I don't think he's made any appearances. Yeah, you would have to do some pretty drastic changes to the character to make that one sort of more suitable for a modern audience. And I know the Mandarin has gone through several different uh, reinventions Yeah, so to make a modern. There we go. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, man alive. We've been talking for, you know, 50 <laughs> minutes and gone through two issues. So we better get a move on here. Uh, issue All number right. 53. Oh, sorry. 23. Issue number 23, River of Death. Shang-Chi goes to South America with Smith and Tar uh, to prevent a meeting between Fu Manchu and, um, and a, what is this, a Nazi named Butcher. They're trying to, to to stop this meeting, and they take a riverboat, and they have this guide on here uh, who sees Shang-Chi and instantly is like, I don't want that person on my mm-hmm. boat. This is another uh, issue that deals with just the racism issue, and uh, um, we find out that this guy, Strawn, is his name. He's, Raymond Strawn. Yeah, he's basically... Um, I, I don't know, he, he just doesn't like him based on the color of his skin, and that's purely it. Well, what we're going to learn is that he's actually a Nazi. Yes. And it ties into the whole Nazi in South America, sort of, uh, I guess. Right, because a lot of them fled to South America yeah. after World War II, right? And again, Doug Mensch is a very big fan of movies, and so we see a lot of those movie influences kind of creeping in, and there was two movies in particular that this one is drawing a lot of. Um, inspiration from Marathon Man, which again plays to the idea of Nazis in South America. But there's another one here, and I wonder if the art is giving homage to this as well. Fitz Corraldo. It's a Werner Herzog film about uh, trying to move a big paddle boat up the Amazon and over some mountains. Okay. <laughs> so, and even the um, even uh, Strahd here, Strahd here looks a little bit like. Um, like uh, Kinski, Klaus Kinski from uh, the Fitzcarraldo movie. So I'm wondering if there was some influence going on here. There very well could be. Very interesting, yeah. Like um, a lot of the <laughs> kung fu films of the time, and like a lot of the issues before, uh, Shang-Chi has to fight an animal. So we've <laughs> seen him fight gorillas. We've seen him yep. fight some others. Now he fights an alligator. It's wonderful. Um, yep, it's, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> Again, if you're a fan of these movies, go watch some Donnie Yen films where he fights bears and gorillas and stuff. It is fun. So the artist, fun. you mentioned Klaus Janssen as an inker that mm-hmm. you absolutely love. Now, I do. This, this issue is drawn by Al Milgram, who you don't like, but inked by Klaus Janssen, who you do like. So the mm-hmm. combination of the two, where does that make you stand with the artwork in this issue here? You know, it's I, I don't see Milgram in this issue. Yeah, I only see I only see Jensen. Yeah, um, I don't see the awkward um, stances. I don't see the awkward perspectives. I mean, even if we're looking at the fight against the alligator on two eighty six, that looks more like Glacy than it does. Maybe it's a little stiffer than than Glacy would have done if you look at Shang Chi about ready to kung fu the underbelly of this gator at the top. But yeah, it, it it looks consistent with what we've been seeing, at least from the uh, the Galassi run. It, if I were a kid and I was reading this, I wouldn't have been shocked by how different the art style suddenly is. I would have felt this is very much at peace with it. The facial expressions are wonderful. Yeah, it definitely has a, a great a great look to it, and you can see Klaus Jansen. 
he likes to make things really moody. That's one of his his mm-hmm. uh, specific things about his inking style. If you look at on page 282, the shadows on Black Jack Tar's face is a very Klaus Janssen type of thing. And um, he, this doesn't go full Klaus. This is this is quite early in his career. Um, once he gets onto Daredevil with Frank Miller, like he just goes in such a different, way more kind of abstract, experimental kind of style. Uh, to go way, way more moody. But here we can mm-hmm. still see that he's a strong inker and has a strong influence over the pencils. Like you said, to the point where we don't even see Al Milgram anymore. That panel you mentioned um, with emphasizing Black Tar there, 282, my goodness, that has such a, a realism to that. Even the way the hair is flowing with the wind. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it's really striking. really kind of stands out. Did you notice that all of the Siphon assassins in this issue are colored pink? Yet Strain still calls them yellow whenever he refers to them. Interesting. I made a note um, about when we start seeing a change in the Siphon from strictly being Asian to being to having uh, white representation within them. And maybe this might be, I might have been, made a mistake, this might be the issue where you start seeing a little bit of that transition. Although, right. are they distinctly Caucasian? Uh, I don't know if they're distinctly Caucasian, but they're just colored, they're colored Caucasian. Yeah. Um, but they do have, have more a of a, pardon? Yeah, we have a new color on this one with uh, Lesman. Okay. Al Lesman. Yeah, that could have something to do with it. And do we see Fu Manchu in this issue at all? Um, right at the end, right? Yes. And he still has he's that. Still, he's still yellow. yellow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's, but that is a little bit of a different change here. When you look at the reveal of Strawn oh, on 293, yeah. don't you wish that that was Baron Zemo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It could have been, yeah. It could have been. This is a, a, a second-rate Baron Zemo here. Totally. Um, they've, they've added, and they will continue to do so very sparingly, um, people from the Marvel Universe into this book. We've seen Man-Thing appear, for example, in Spider-Man. Um, but it seems like they certainly had room to add more of traditional Marvel characters in. Yeah. Um, you almost wish this was... I, I certainly wish this was Baron Zemo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there. did you notice throughout this entire issue that Shang-Chi only has two lines of dialogue? did not notice that yeah so he narrates the uh, th- this whole thing which is uh, typical of one of these issues but he only actually speaks out loud two lines and one of the lines is on page 279 right mm-hmm. at the beginning where um where did it go well, I can see he speaks on 292, but again, very briefly. Yes, 292 is the other one that I mentioned that I uh, wanted to point out. Maybe that's the only line. Maybe I thought that there was another line in here. But yeah, he, he doesn't speak at all. I found that to be an interesting technique to keep him silent throughout this entire issue. Um, and I, I think a lot of that is so that he, to show that to show his response to this racism as well. Uh, oh, he, he yells out, hi, yeah. At, in, yes, on two, 287, I think that's, maybe that's the other line um, that I was thinking mm-hmm. of. But yeah, he, he doesn't talk, he doesn't engage with with Strand at all. He doesn't try to, to speak to him or convince him or or anything. He just stays silent. So I thought that was an interesting move. Mm. That's a fascinating, uh, that's a good observation on your part. Look at that. Mm. I didn't even notice that. But again, it does speak to the interior nature, nature of Shang-Chi. Yes. That he is not this overt character. Um, 
I imagine that's why you kind of have to have guys like Black Tar, who is bombastic, and Dennis Smith to kind of help us along, Sir Dennis to kind of help us along in, in, in moving the story forward. Oh, for sure. From narration's point of view, because Shang-Chi just more so reacts to that world around him than he does kind of interfere with it himself. Okay, shall we move on to the next issue here? Let's do it. So this issue is Master of Kung Fu number 24. The title is Massacre Along the Amazon. So once again, um, this is continuing on pretty much right where we left off. Um, and the same big protagonists are going to be there uh, with Fu Manchu added in for extra measure towards the end. And essentially what we're going to have is the two groups, the Nazis and the Saifan, are going to come into conflict with each other. And just in case you have any uh, confusion about who the Nazis are, they wear swastika shirts for you. <laughs> just, <laughs> How just to let you know yep. <laughs> who they are. I love the uh, some of the, the technology stuff here with Wu Manchu and this little itty bitty helicopter. This one seems almost like a bubble helicopter, kind of floating around. Yeah. Uh, both sides are emphasized as really bad. Shang Chi has to go in, in disguise, but when he gets into a fight on page three hundred three, we have a really fantastic. Even though we have a we have a bunch of different artists on this one, Milgram, Starlin, Weiss, Simonson, all working together. It's one of those issues where you can kind of have fun trying to figure out who's doing what. But on page three hundred three, I almost wonder if this is. Starling, because Starling is known for his fantastic action sequences, but then I'm not seeing the over-muscleization that Starling tends to go with. That could be that the inker doesn't put that work in there, but that does look like a Starling page without the borders on the panels. Yeah, that's. I just love when I see, we see the, the movements on one panel, although there's no panels, kind of flowing into the next one. It's just, it's just some wonderful stuff. Yeah. Um, Within the action here, um, we're going to get, again, one of the consistent motifs that when action actually does begin to flow, Fu Manchu um, takes cover. He's not a man of action himself. He's the mastermind. But one of the great things about this one is he actually ends up seemingly getting captured by the Nazis um, into it. And the Nazis themselves are going to get kind of shocked when they throw a knife or the main Nazi, Strong, gets shocked when he throws a knife into Shang-Chi. Yep. And because Shang-Chi does not necessarily fail here, um, he's stunned by the fact that an Asian person can actually stand up to him. <laughs> yeah. But seemingly he meets his end by falling off a bomb or missile with, again, a big Nazi <laughs> symbol on it. Yep. In case you, uh, in case your last moments on this earth, you want to know who killed you. <laughs> There's a Nazi symbol on the bomb. So did you notice again um, that Shang-Chi through this issue doesn't say anything until the very, very last page here where he mm -hmm. talks but yeah, he he doesn't say anything throughout this. It's all told through his narration. So there's there's plenty of Shang's voice in this issue, um, but but all of his in, it's all internal monologue. And then at the end here, his his dialogue is great. The butcher is dead, and my father has escaped as he knew he would, even as I saved his life. And this this line I like here. Perhaps Fu Manchu's conduct has earned him death, but he does not deserve to die merely because he was born to his race. Thus, it was my actions which set him free. So the butcher was going to kill Fu Manchu because he's Asian, mm -hmm. and so because of his moral code, Shang Chi actually saved his father's life, even though he's been trying to kill him this whole time, because this was not the time, the the way that he should die. He shouldn't die just because he's Chinese. I thought that was. Um, a, a nice little twist there. It is. It is a good one. 
this is again another issue where Shang Chi goes rogue. Right. He he was presumed dead after he was shot in the last issue, and uh, Black Tar and Sir Dennis are wondering where he is. But Shang Chi just doesn't really seem to care whether these guys are involved or not. Although they will be towards the end, um, just kind of goes rogue, goes and does his own thing. Suppose this making the statement that Shang Chi is really no person's man; he's his own. Even though right. he tries to go for the better good, as he determines it, he is always going to look at Sir Dennis, and to a lesser extent Black Tar, with a bit of suspicion. Um, he doesn't want to be manipulated by them, and he realizes those guys are working for their own government and their own means to it. And so, yeah, I think this is where you can really see the start of the evolution of this title, mm-hmm. where Shang's actions here are going to play really well, like the the way he just kind of goes off on his own into his his next little side career in the next volume i think page 306 is fun you have a a fun art page there where you have the crossfire going on with all these people being shot in it and the way they draw the movement lines for the bullets actually does make uh, a chessboard sort of thing with people just getting shot to pieces i thought that was fun this whole two part i really enjoyed i thought it was a a really nice a good story a lot of action um you know gives a good message uh, some people might consider it a little too preachy or whatever, but I thought it did a good job of conveying what it needed to and c- giving a good resolution. And Shang-Chi works better outside of New York City, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, getting him out of, in international affairs, international waters, and all these sort of things is fun. And it's it just seems more at peace than having him continuously being called Chinaman or other worse things by random New Yorkers or being attempted to be mugged by the comic book writing team, for example, of New York City. This is just yeah. this is a much a better vision, I think, for the book, and it's going to be the vision that's going to carry us through towards the end. Well, and one of the the main things that Shang Chi has going for it is the whole fish out of water um, aspect to his character. And if he, he stays in New York, eventually he won't be a fish out of water anymore because he'll get used to it. He'll learn the way it works, the way the city works, and he'll become part of that culture, right? Mm-hmm. So, but if he's constantly going around the world, visiting a new place in every issue, he's now a fish out of water every single time. So it'll be interesting to see him continue to do that. He'll be himself but in a mm-hmm. foreign setting over and over again. And we'll see how he reacts to that. It provides lots of good storytelling. It does. It does. And this character is going to mature in this way as well. Um, yeah. Fun issue. Fun, uh, yeah. fun series. So we jump into 25? I think we should. This one's called Rites of Courage, Fists of Death. <laughs> what a great title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so many great titles in, in this book here. Um, in in this one, Shang stumbles upon an Aboriginal tribe, and this is a this was a really interesting story. The the tribe is going to sacrifice a little kid, and mm-hmm. he's like, "That's not right." So he goes to save save the kid, um, and it it brings him into the actual tribe to to learn about them a little bit, and he eventually ends up fighting all of them. <laughs> So yeah, this this is um it's an interesting story. It's a little bit problematic just in terms of the depiction of the the, the tribe. Yeah, um, very dated again, playing on the stereotypes of the shrunken heads and you know voodoo witch doctor kind of just the, those stereotypes, right? But it was it was just an interesting issue. I found this issue has a lot of a lot of interesting things to play around with. Um. Again, if, if I can recall us back to um, 
the second um, issue we talked about in the last uh, podcast where we brought in Midnight. Yep. And we kind of see almost a parallel here to that because Midnight also was a character who was, as a child, was rescued from uh, from a village only in Africa yep. by Fu Manchu in that case, and then Fu Manchu raised him. Well, here again, we, we see almost like a... a, a uh, a paralleling of or mirroring of Fu Manchu and Shang Chi, okay, with different yeah. results, of course. Right. In that he's saving this this child. Um, again, only this time it's from a village who wants to sacrifice him because he was born on a day or night without moon. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> um, but unlike his father, he doesn't take him in and, and and make him a disciple. He lets the child go free with the mother at the end. So there's some interesting paralleling there. They view Shang-Chi as a god after he walks the gauntlet. Um, that's the initiation process that some Native American tribes did. The Iroquois up by me were, were well known for. If you could survive going through the, the gauntlet where you'd have two lines of the braves literally beat the tar out of you and give you minor cuts. If you could survive that, you actually got a chance to enter into the tribe. Hmm. I guess there's some historical parallels to that i don't know if amazonian tribes do that um i felt inside my wheelhouse right but shang chi goes through it and not only does he walk the gauntlet but he beats the tar out of everybody in the gauntlet <laughs> yeah to the point where they assume he's a god um and that's where we, again we get the, another interesting parallel or another interesting moment here because he was this whole situation was narrated primarily through a, a Sai fan that they had captured and they were seemingly going to kill. So Shang-Chi, with now the power of a god of this, of this Native American village, wishes for the Sai fan fella to be made free as well. And on 329, there's a wonderful little scene that again shows the villainy of Fu Manchu where he's telling this guy, essentially, look, you can go your own way. The dialogue reads, Shang-Chi says, my path lies there, Saifan. But then, will you seek my father? The Saifan guy, despite everything else, despite getting saved by Shang-Chi, says, who else, Shang-Chi? And then draws a knife, um, only to then meet his fate yeah. after going over the side of a mountain. Yeah, that was quite something. It's like, show a little gratitude, but the influence <laughs> of Fu Manchu was so strong mm. and maybe he knows that even if he's free and if he flees Fu Manchu, Fu Manchu will just track him down and kill him anyway. So yeah. the only way to stay in Fu's good graces is to, you know, still try and kill uh, Shang-Chi. I mean, I guess it's like he's dead either way. <laughs> yeah. A couple of other, again, if you're, if you're doing like a, a take a shot every time Shang-Chi fights an animal, <laughs> you got to take a shot. Oh, he fights yeah. the jaguar here. Totally. Yeah. At the beginning, this is, this is great. <laughs> Um, this is this one is inked by Sal Trapini, who did the last issue with the four different mm -hmm. pencilers. He uh, Sal puts a lot more definition into the muscles. Mm. Uh, you can see all of the different muscles on all of these Aboriginal guys' uh, torsos and and backs. And same with Chang Chi, you can see so many more muscles on him in this. Yeah, one. <clears throat> yeah. Interestingly, Bill Mantlo is doing colors. I never knew he did oh, colors. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Black Tar is somehow getting hair. <laughs> when he starts off the series, he had, um, I guess, like the Ben Franklin haircut, bald on top, but long hair everywhere else. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Slowly but surely, he's getting hair. Good um, for him. So, yeah, good, uh, good on him. <laughs> Take control of that situation. <laughs> if only the same could happen with Dennis Nayland Smith. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Good issue though. I, I really like this one. We get Galacy coming back, um, which is which is fun. Yep. And for the next several issues, we're going to have him sparingly. I think. I, I think, think so too. Yeah. Guests, guests it's all of those um, triple size, giant size issues. They take mm. him out of the mix so often. Yeah, he's in the next issue, but or the giant size, next giant size. We're yeah. getting to. Yeah. Oh well. Do you notice that Paul Galacy isn't doing any of the covers to these books? To, the, to these issues it's all hey, like right. Busema or Gil Kane like Glacy doesn't get a, a cover shot at all and I don't know I haven't looked to see if he does any in the next volume but he doesn't get to do them in this one at least interesting yeah and the giant size doesn't have him doing the uh, covers no oh that almost looks like a cover hmm I can't it's kind of Gil Kane-ish I think yeah that's what I was looking for Gil Kane yeah. certainly has that sort of that sort of uh that styling to him but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'd have to look online to see for sure. But anyway, why don't we move over to Giant Size number three? Absolutely. Fires of Rebirth. Um, so Giant Size number three is going to be pretty pivotal. These Giant Size issues tended to be pretty pivotal. At least the first three were. Uh, the fourth one, mm, not so much. But um, this one's going to center around a group of um, Indian, uh, subcontinent continent Indian, assassins called the fan cigars now what i know about those guys that that actually was sort of a a group in india that were loosely associated with the thugi movement that's where we get our term thug and it's unclear whether that was more about colonial fiction of the time how widespread the thuggy movement was or whether because they were generally associated with with banditry throughout the um the Indian subcontinent during British rule. Um, but the scholarship is a little bit fuzzy on it. But the stories of the thuggies became quite famous. You see them in Gunga Din, for example. Okay. I think that's what they're drawing a little bit of that from. The term actually just means to um, – the, the, the term fancigar means those guys who use nooses. So if these guys actually did exist to the extent that the British claimed they did – they were probably infamous for strangling people or um, lynching people. And we see so. that in this issue, for sure. That's their chief weapon, is yeah. the, the garot, or whatever you call it. So this is the first time also, uh, uh, just to get a, kind of a background on it, on this issue. So Shang-Chi's in London, where he's going to meet a new British spy and a mainstay character throughout the rest of the story, of uh, the series, in Clive Reston. So if you look at Clive... Here's where we get to play the game. Does can you see what actor he's supposed to be? Um, okay, let me see. Um, where did we first get Clive? Here is it on page two or three thirty nine that we first pops? It? Oh no, yeah, uh, three thirty eight and three thirty nine. Yeah. Um, any? Do you want to venture a guess? I have an idea who they claim it is. I'm. I don't quite see it myself. I have no idea. All right. So, what Wikipedia says. <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Is that it's Sean Connery? Sean Connery. Uh, yeah, I don't see it. Maybe it's also been suggested Basil Rathborn. I could um, see that bit. more than Sean Connery. I need a I need a little pencil mustache for Basil Rathborn yeah. myself. But yeah, anyway, he's a character who's supposed to also be related to um, both James Bond and uh, he's supposed Holmes. to be the son of James Bond and the great grand nephew of Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite an impressive uh, family history there yeah so tying, tying him into that um he's very much part of that british mod scene as he's fighting in these plaid this plaid suits and long coat yep with his um, pipe of course with the sherlock holmes pipe 
Um, one thing I, li- I do like about the character is that they give him a very distinct voice. Like if you're looking at the dialogue bubbles, you can always tell when Clive is talking. He has a very distinct kind of pattern to his voice, which is very different from um, Shang-Chi or even da- Sir Dennis. Yeah. Uh, and Black Tar, to his credit, also has a very distinct uh, voice to it. Um, so essentially they're chasing down these, um, uh, these uh, fan cigars. They're going to, along the way, fight Neanderthals for reasons. <laughs> <laughs> they come alive at a museum. I suppose we're supposed to understand that as being uh, symptomatic of the magical side of Fu Manchu, where you can make these things come alive. I thought um, they were just guys in disguise. Interesting. I Yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't see the supernatural element in that. Okay. I, I, I was left kind of perplexed by the whole thing yeah. myself. Uh, because if they're in disguise, their disguise is pretty basic. <laughs> just wear a loincloth and look like a Neanderthal. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea because they don't really explain it like you said. Um, I read it differently than you did. So that's interesting that uh, we both had different uh, a different take on that. Fantastic. Either could be right. Either could be right. Yeah, it's not explained. Yeah. Fantastic kill scene on 349, though, when uh, one of these Neanderthals gets thrown into a T-Rex mouth. I think it's a T-Rex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the mouth gets kicked closed. <laughs> or no, one of the guys lands on top of it, thus shutting the mouth, yep. uh, theoretically killing the guy. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Um, the action against... The uh, fan cigars is fantastic. It culminates finally on page uh, 356. And we see that. We're going to have a fight scene again against one of these colorful villains of um, Fu Manchu. Uh, this time, the Shadow Stalker, who has one of the most ridiculous <laughs> oh, yeah. fighting methodologies that we can imagine. He has morning stars, twin morning stars, that are attached to his topknot hair. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't even so, understand this. If, if they use this guy in the movie... I will stand up in the back of the theater and begin applauding. <laughs> I will be so impressed <laughs> oh, if we can get man. that in the Shang-Chi movie. That, that will make my year, <laughs> without a doubt. I just don't even get it. It's, and uh, you'd have to, like, this, the, the chains on the balls have to be a certain length so that you're not smacking yourself in the head with your own morning star. But if you look at it, they're not that length. <laughs> it's impossible <laughs> that he was not impaling himself on these spiked balls um like all the time the big reveal in this issue however though is a bit of a retcon uh, as we find out that as we thought in that very first issue very first appearance of shang chi where he came in as an assassin and killed dr petri um dr petri was like the watson to um sir dennis's uh, sherlock holmes yep in the novels he was the narrator um, too he narrated most of the oh they, that's what you mean by watson yeah because watson narrated yeah, the sherlock yeah. holmes books and so the the initial action the origin story is that he kills this guy and has deep guilt about it we now find out he actually didn't kill him it was a clone and uh he's rescued and He'll never really be a part of the series. There'll, there'll be a, a little story arc much later on where he becomes um, sort of a character into it. But um, for the most part, it, it, it just erases that, uh, that origin story. I think some of the speculation about this is that um, the deal they had with the Romer estate that they promised that they would never harm uh, Petri. And so you, you couldn't really kill one of the main characters from the, uh, 
from the Saks Romer line. And so I guess they had to kind of back that away a little bit. But That's interesting. I guess it's Engelhardt who kills him at the beginning. It's not Doug. Because when I spoke to Doug, and I can play a little clip of it here, uh, he was saying how that he, he never like he never had to deal with requests from the Romer estate. Interesting. Uh, I tell you, people ask me this question all the time. And I've done, okay, I've done the Fu Manchu, I've done James Bond, I've yep. done Godzilla, Shogun Warriors, Planet of the Apes, right. and, you know, a few others. I was never, ever asked to redo anything by anyone, ever. Okay. And as far, I don't even know if they had to get these things approved, right? So, I mean, everything else, I, I, okay, with James Bond, I know they did run it by uh, Ian Fleming's estate, but nobody ever asked for anything. The reason I know that is one night, I, the phone rings, and it's, uh, uh, what's his name, Mike Richards, the guy who started Dark Horse, is his name Mike Richards? I think so, yeah. yeah. That's his name, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He called up. He said, Doug, I just got back from London. Uh, I just had to call you because I met with so-and-so, uh, the guy in charge of Glidrose, Ian Fleming's literary estate. And this guy told me to tell you that y- your James Bond Serpent's Tooth is far and away the best James Bond story not written by Ian Fleming and tell Doug that includes all the movies and all of the pastiche novels. Wow. Blah, blah, blah. Really? Wow, that's <laughs> a great compliment. Yeah, that's amazing. But and I don't know if the Planet of the Apes people really even read the stuff. I don't know uh, about the Godzilla stuff. Nobody, nobody ever said anything, and I was never asked to change anything. Well, that's good. That makes your I job mean, way easier then. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would have quit if... You know, it became a constant nightmare. But, with, you know, there were ground rules up front. I mean, like when, when we did Godzilla. Okay, it, we have the rights to Godzilla, but not to anything else. You can't, you can't do Ghidra or Rodan or anything. You, none of that. Make up your own monsters like that. And I did, you know. And, uh, what, you know, if, as long as I followed the ground rules, it, apparently they didn't care. What this does is freeze Shang-Chi of the guilt that he had at the beginning of this book. It it also means that his quest is now different, because if he has no longer killed the person he thought he killed, he doesn't have the same purpose in life anymore. Like, his reason for leaving his father is, is gone. Um, but I really like how he kind of still has to wrestle with the thoughts in his mind. He says here... Um, at the very last page, mm-hmm. Dennis Nayland Smith says, uh, you're right, Shang-Chi, no one must get the elixir. I'll smash it and let Tim... No, no, hold on. Um, what do I want to see here? Oh, yeah, Shang-Chi at the very last panel says, I'm glad that you are still alive, Dr. Petri, but it saddens me to know that I am still guilty of your murder in my mind. Mm-hmm. So he... Because it was, it was definitely premeditated. He knew what he was doing. He knew that he was intending to go and kill, and he knew that he did accomplish that fact. So he still he still feels the guilt. Mm. That's that's a great uh, a great, great kind of change into the character. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't negate the origin; it maintains the origin. It just uh, maintains the the I guess the fiction or the characters of the of the source material. Yeah. So I know what I was going to say here uh, at at the in the panel before. Um, 
I guess we didn't really mention that the whole thing is over this elixir, the last little vial of this elixir that's keeping Fu Manchu young. Uh, mm-hmm. Was be it was hidden in a ceramic or some sort of um, like a, a, a an elephant, right? Was it an elephant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it got broken in a battle. Shang Chi knows this, but but Nayland Smith does not know it. He says, "No one must ever get the elixir. I'll smash the statue and let the temptation spill away forever." And Shang Chi he knows that that's impossible because it's already broken. But he's glad that Nayland Smith still says it because in his mind. Um, he he says, uh, what does he say here? That that he has already done it, done so in his mind is greater than the act itself, and yeah. that's why he says to himself that he's guilty. He's still guilty of murder. Uh, he sort of mm. contrasts it there, so it's really nice. Um, just uh, really really good with the words by Doug Mensch. <laughs> a couple last points I'll make about this issue. Um, fun thing, uh, the the opening splash page on three thirty two. Yep. You have him looking into a uh, toy store, and there's a Bruce Lee doll yeah, leaning. I saw that. Yep. Totally good. Uh, this is probably the, f- I think this is the first issue where we have a clearly identified Caucasian male as a Psy fan with the fellow who uh, tries to kill him in the car. Uh, 335, you have this fantastic action scene where he leaps from the car. Um, spectacular sort of uh, movement to it. Yeah, really, really cool. So, what do you, what do you consider to be a Psy fan? Um, just the... Is it anyone under the employee of Fu Manchu? I do consider them to be... If you're under the employee of Fu Manchu and you're trying to kill Shang-Chi, chances are you're a Psy fan. Okay, so (laughs) there was a white guy then, the drunk guy Mm -hmm. that Shang-Chi met at the beginning of that other issue. Was that guy linked up to Fu Manchu? Yeah, because later on... The drunk guy on on the street of Manhattan? Yep, later on you see him with Fu Manchu giving an update on where Shang-Chi is. So the the, the being drunk was just an act. Interesting, I forgot that. Okay, so maybe this isn't the first um, time. But I'm glad we're seeing uh, a little bit more diversity in Sci-Fam. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because if it's supposed to be uh, if it's supposed to be a worldwide underground assassination organization, then they hopefully would have a few more people from other countries in there. Yeah, good. Uh, one last point. I'm just kind of kind of try to rush us on some of these because we are running time. I love that on um, the way the waves are drawn on three forty three. It reminds me of that famous Japanese painting about the waves. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. You have that definitely with the white foam. Yeah, I think uh, I doubt that that is a mistake. I think that that was very much intentional. Just in terms of, yeah, you have, have, have the phone kind of rolling over and the, and the wonderful curve of it. Yeah. And also the final thing I'll, I'll point out is on 345, I love how the snake um, makes its way through four panels as they're talking about Fu Manchu. Yeah. And just how deliberate, how... Um, how far-reaching Fu Manchu is. I thought that was a nice little flourish there. Yeah, Galassi with his little touches like that is great. And you notice that this one is inked by Vince Coletta, who I am not a fan of. Mm. Um, and very, it really changes the way that Galassi's work looks. And I think one of the, the biggest examples of this uh, is on page 370, where uh, you see Shang um, kicking this this uh, serpent in the face and you see the distorted perspective again with his foot really, really large because it's the closest thing to us. Um, but it just looks off because yeah, Vince Coletta doesn't do the same sort of inking 
that uh, that we were we are used to um he's very much he's way more simplistic and he's uh he uses a lot more thin lines he's not as dynamic or bombastic in his uh in his in his shadows and shading and so it doesn't recently, it just doesn't come off the same i recently read the um a, a wonderful if you if you love comic book history i'd recommend anyone pick up uh, this book slugfest the conflict or the the competition between Marvel and DC with the title Slugfest and kind of plays around that. And in that one, they talk about Vince Coletta is mentioned, especially in terms of what he was doing with DC, and he doesn't come off all that great. Yeah. What they what the writer, the historian, talks about is how sometimes Vince Coletta would even erase some of the art to hurry an image through. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he's doing that here. I think he is. And I think a lot of this is because he's just rushing. If you go to the beginning of this issue, the inking is way better. Like in that scene that you were talking about where he's jumping out of off of the roof of the car. The inking has so much detail in there. It looks like he's being a lot more faithful to Paul Galassi's artwork in this Mm -hmm. one. But then you flip over to the last couple of pages and like the backgrounds are really sparse and the, mm-hmm. there's very minimalistic shading on the faces and stuff because I think because this is a giant size, I think he just ran out of time. Could be. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well. Fantastic issue, though. Wonderful one. Yep. Okay, moving on to issue number 26, Daughter of Darkness. And here is, uh, this is an important issue because we bring into the fold the daughter of Fu Manchu. And this is, what's her name? Fa Lu Sui. Falu Sui first appears in the third Fu Manchu book, which is called The Hand of Fu Manchu in 1917. Mm-hmm. And so this is her first uh, appearance. And she, she's kind of a mainstay character through, through the books, I think. Maybe she... Maybe, she is. Yeah. And, and in, um, towards, towards the middle end of the series, uh, she's even going to become the main villain of the, of the series when Fu Manchu is... Uh, yeah, when he's believed dead for a little while. He's going to do that a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> be presumed dead. And she's going to fill in as as the main uh, protagonist. protagonist. Um, Keith Pollard is on art here this time. Doug's still writing, and you know Keith Pollard, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I sometimes I like his stuff, and sometimes it's just mediocre. There is really no comparison when you take Keith Pollard and put him next to Paul Galassi. Uh, (laughs) No, he just doesn't work. He's too he's too straightforward for this book. Yeah, and kind of like what I was saying in our last episode, he doesn't, I don't think he has a real firm grasp of the genre either. So the fighting style is, it's kung fu light, I suppose. I mean, there's a few kicks, but it doesn't have that athleticism that you would see with a a martial arts. In other words, it's not agility-based so much as it is strength-based in terms of how the, the action is depicted here. You can totally see that come off if you go to page 377. With it, which is the the fight against Fu Manchu's goons here, Shang Chi stays upright pretty much mm-hmm. for the entire fight. He's not flipping backwards or or showing off that athleticism that you were talking about, and it comes off as a very stiff fight. Yeah, yeah. I do like on the next page where he has that kind of does the speed lines. I suppose we see the something you oftentimes see with the Flash right. in uh, in the seventies. That's kind of fun, but. That's about the best thing I can say about this, the art of this particular issue. And the other thing is that he stays with the, the camera positioned uh, the same way. Like, he doesn't get creative with angles or anything. No. It's uh, it's very, yeah, like I said, straightforward. Falu Sui, um, nothing I can say about her uh, appearance that distinguishes her as Asian either. 
So right. again, we have that sort of scenario going on here. Yeah, in fact, she's very Caucasian. Like she's got the chiseled cheekbones and and everything. Mm-hmm. It looks like almost a Sal uh, Buscema sort of art stylings on her. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So the story is Falus Weiss to try to recover these gems from um, a pyramid in Egypt. And that's what brings the action forward. Um, again, it kind of ties into a lot of Sax Romer stuff where he did like a very international flair, not only to his Fu Manchu novels, but some of the other stuff that he would write. And so this is, I suppose, at peace with that. Um, well, and the, in the speaking. books where she appears, she appears in the ones that deal with ancient Egypt. Oh, great. She seems to have powers of mind control coming from these, uh, what is it, uh, certain sapphires that she has. Yeah. Uh, tied when with her eye color of green and um eh, the fights are all right so the pyramid blows up so much for archaeology at the end of it <laughs> yeah <laughs> we are met uh we meet this archaeologist robert grenville and he's actually a character from the books as well okay and he dies in this issue and so what you were saying before about not touching the uh like not not killing off any of the sax romer characters Mm, I must uh, he, have been wrong on that he one. Does do it, and yeah, this this does happen. Although Greville's a fairly minor character, so maybe that doesn't matter as much. I certainly can't remember thinking uh, any other appearances of Greville later on. So yeah, uh, interesting to note that this that uh, Shang is actually not the focus of this story. He is there, but really the action is on the daughter and on on Greville. Like that's really what this is all about. Um, Shang doesn't really do anything to to affect the storyline, except at the very very end. Yeah, I really feel like it's uh, this story was written kind of as a sequel to some of the novels rather than an actual chapter in Shang Chi's life. It almost feels like it was one of those um, uh, maybe like desk issues that uh, were put together to fill in for a deadline crunch. But then again, you get to meet one of the more important characters of the series, so perhaps not. Yeah, I mean, it could fit in kind of any place if they needed to. It's one and done. Yeah. I do love the cover, though, where Shang-Chi is kicking somebody's head into a, <laughs> into a, <laughs> a great Egyptian pillar. Yeah. Um, that's got a smart. <laughs> that does, can't yeah. be fun. <laughs> Okay, shall we keep going over to issue number 27? Sure, issue 27. Uh, confrontation. So here's where we're going to get um, John Buscema. Is it a weird thing that um, <laughs> in a series, I'm going to look at a John Buscema issue and say, yeah, that's some of the worst art <laughs> of it. <laughs> Almost feels like it shouldn't. Like That just doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah. But there it is. Um, the Sebo was doing Conan, I believe, at this time. Yeah. And unfortunately, Shang-Chi is going to look like Kung Fu Conan uh, for the most part. Right. There's going to be very little that's going to distinguish him um, as uh, as Asian or even anything at peace with what Glacey was doing with the physicality. He's a big, thick, muscled um, figure in this particular issue. The story behind this is actually a pretty good one, and there's going to be some really good moments in this one. Um, we start off with <laughs> Shang-Chi has fought alligators, sharks, um, <laughs> jaguars. This one he fights a TV antenna, and he kung fus <laughs> it to death, <laughs> knocking it over, which I thought was fun. Uh, it's not, not going to be the first time in this issue either that he's going to do structural damage with the power of kung fu. But he busts into one of Fu Manchu's New York City headquarters and whoops everyone's butt there including some of the people at the at those secret meetings 
And when he gives those guys a good beating, uh, we're going to see just how international many of them are. Um, uh, let's see where am I? So Fu Manchu is not impressed, however, with how good Shang-Chi is able to uh, beat people up and takes him into a secret lab where they have a conversation um, about Falu Sui's betrayal. And you almost get a sense of how poor Fu Manchu has been feeling lonely, <laughs> but his sister has uh, just kind of going, gone her own way and is causing a split among the Sai fans into different warring uh, factions. Now, what I do love about that is, uh, if we look up page 407, there's some fantastic dialogue, which is flawed logic, but it might very well be the best uh, that we've seen of the personality and mentality of um, Fu Manchu. Mm, So I'm referring specifically, if we go to the bottom panels, I'm going to read a little bit from the last panel on this page, where they're essentially kind of talking about how different and how similar their philosophies are. Fu Manchu says to Shang-Chi, do not condemn me for following a path different from yours. They all lead inevitably to death, and all men are equally rewarded for their same actions in life with the same death. Will your death be any better than mine? Before you answer, Shang-Chi, consider this. To me, you are evil. To me, you are the villain, and I the hero. Wow, yeah. Now, if we, if we phrase that or put that within the context of sometimes how Fu Manchu is depicted as... In, in the colonial literature in particular, with the idea that he is the yellow peril personified, he is Asian menace. But if you flip that a little bit, you can almost see him as a hero among Asiatic people against colonialism. And I think that's what they're trying to say here. He's not a villain. I'm trying to keep the Asiatic countries Asiatic, as opposed to having you with your colonial ways or the you being the Westerners, which Shang-Chi is being personified as representing by confronting him. You're the evil one here. You're helping promote colonialism against us. What are you doing, Shang-Chi? Which I think is a very fascinating way to kind of approach this. Shang-Chi, for his part, is like, look, you killed a dude tonight. How can you deny you're anything but evil? Um, But Fu Manchu's response is, it is true. I do not hesitate to place the value of life beneath the value of my goals. Mm. Yeah, there you go. What do you think about Fu Manchu based upon a little bit of a little bit more attention paid to motivation with him? This is always what makes a villain much more interesting is if they don't see anything wrong with what they're doing. Yes. Uh, the evil mad scientist who's just crazy or whatever, you know, the the Joker is, you know, he's he's a good villain, but he's just nuts and that's that that gets tiresome after a while, but if you have a, I think Loki is another good example of of a villain Doctor who, uh, yeah, or Doctor Doom, who's who tries to be benevolent but just goes about it the completely the wrong way. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, much more interesting. Now he he clears himself of one of this one death that that for, first of all I don't know why Shang is going after him for just this one person that's died <laughs> because there have been over the over the last. 15 issues, countless people that, uh, and, and many that Shang has been involved with or, or have talked to that Fu Manchu is directly responsible for. And, and Shang's like, or uh, Fu Manchu's like, don't, don't lord your, your, uh, your high position over me on this death because I had nothing to do with this one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but what about <laughs> the hundreds and hundreds of other ones? Yeah, the goals are the important part. Goals are the important yeah. uh, aspect here. I, I love uh, how John B. John Buscema does a little bit of the laboratory art, technology. I yeah. just love the way technology is drawn in comic books in the 70s, 60s and 70s in particular. 
Oh, that's fun. That's fun. I actually think that John Buscema was a good choice for this issue because of the, all of the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Because John is good at uh, making talking heads look interesting. Yeah. And so while we, while you like the the action is fairly minimal, there are a few action scenes in here. Uh, which John, of course, does well as well. Maybe not quite suited for this book in particular. But once we get into the conversations uh, and everything really slows down, uh, John does a good job of providing different angles and interesting backgrounds so that the talking heads isn't boring. So if you look on page 407 and you just tune out the pictures and just look at the dialogue, there is a lot of dialogue on this page. Mm Mm-hmm. But if you look at the pictures, it's not just talking heads. There's still stuff going on, like Fu Manchu is doing experiments. Or there's one panel where there are shadows in the background, and you see the rats in a cage in the foreground. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the very first panel on this page has Fu Manchu reaching for um, a vial in front of Shang-Chi. Uh, so, like, it's an, it's interesting. And I don't know if Paul Gulacy, because we haven't really seen him doing extended big conversations like this, I don't know how he would handle this, but John does it well, I think. He does. And even, again, adding, kind of building on what you're saying and, and tying to what I was saying before, if on you look on 407, the middle panel or the middle um, line, the last panel there, you have Fu Manchu almost looking humble, yeah. his heads downwards, um, and he looks he looks like a reasonable person as opposed to this ghoulish uh, Christopher Lee <laughs> draw right. uh, caricature. Yeah, and and again on 409, again you have that sort of almost a sympathetic look to him. John Buscema really draws Fu Manchu like, um, oh, who's the villain in Flash Gordon, the old Flash Gordon? Oh, on, uh, on Ming Mom. the Merciless. Ming the Merciless. Yeah, that's right. I really feel like he, he he's pulling out his best Ming the Merciless here. <laughs> I think you're right. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, great stuff. Um, good. Very good issue, despite the lack of action. Yep. But, you know, that's okay. If you can pull off a good issue without the action, uh, then I think that, uh, that you have a good writer. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, why don't we see about the, this next issue here, Ma- Master of Kung Fu number 28. A small spirit, slowly shaped, and you can see on this cover that it's the return of <laughs> Shadow, Shadow Stalker. <laughs> <laughs> this, I, I really like this issue. Um, yeah. This one, this one was really good. We have Ron Wilson, Ed Hannigan, and Aubrey Bradford as pencilers. So again, we have three. I, I don't know why we're getting so many pencilers in these issues. Um, deadlines, I assume. Mm-hmm. But three. We had one with four pencilers, and now we have one with three pencilers. That's that's kind of unheard of, I think. It is. Um, I, mean, I don't know what was going on with Lacey. Uh, the giant size. But I'm he sure. Do the last of the giant size. Uh, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, I don't know. Pollard. That's right. So uh, in this issue, Falu Sui is back, and she's kidnapped Nalan in order to draw Shang-Chi um, to see... She wants to see what side exactly Shang-Chi is on. Um, you can really tell through this issue the, the difference in pencilers because uh, there's just some really extremes. If you go to page 415... Mm-hmm. That that panel with Fu Manchu with oh, all awful. of the yeah with it's just it's got some weird facial proportions and the the odd shading on it doesn't fall in line with um, with the other stuff like if you go to page number four twenty one obviously a different penciler with uh, much nicer nicer artwork or 
um, I guess I don't, I, I don't know. I can't tell the styles. I don't know these artists well enough to know who's drawing what. So, but I can just definitely see that there's differences. Yeah, I've always, I've always appreciated Ron Wilson for his work on Two and One, Marvel Two and One. Right. Um, just being a, an enormous Ben Grimm fan growing up. Um, and he was the majority guy on that. And I think a lot of the fight scenes, like if we look at 423, that's Ron Wilson. Yeah. But kind of as I mentioned also in our last um, podcast together, he's a guy who comes from a boxing background. And you can see in 423, he's throwing a good uh, left, straight straight left <laughs> at that guy's head over there. Right. So it's consistent with that, not so much consistent with the, the genre, unfortunately. One thing I think is interesting about this issue um, is how they, they have a couple of contrasting pages here. The first one, if you look at page 413, you have young Shang-Chi meeting young Fa Lu Sui. Right. And they have this wonderful little conversation sitting around a bonsai tree about what it means to be the daughter and son of Fu Manchu. Um, and she's pretty much saying, no, little spirit, I am only Fu Manchu's daughter. Um, and then when he says, I, and I am his son, corrects the little spirit that you, that, and that is enough, a son or a daughter of Fu Manchu is all one may ever hope for, but never a brother or sister to anyone. So it's this strange sort of isolation from each other, even though they're brother and sister, that they grew up with. Um, and if you contrast that to 419, once again, they're sitting now as adults around a bonsai tree. And we see how differently their upbringing uh, kind of took them, where now she's pretty much consigned to evil, and he doesn't even seem interested at all in sitting down with her as brother to sister. Yeah. Um, again, he's, when she says, sit on the, under its beauty, he says, I'm not tired. He's not having it. I thought that was a great, um, great contrast uh, to tell the time of the story and the evolution of the characters. Yeah, I like that they were digging into his past. We don't really know much about Shang-Chi at all, about his upbringing or anything. Um, in fact, it's almost a retcon that he has a has a sister here, or a half-sister, I guess. Um, and I guess when you're as old as Fu Manchu, they could probably bring in brothers and sisters for, for uh, Shang-Chi over and over again. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, octogenarians, I'm sure, might even do it. Um, <laughs> on fa page 412, there's a fantastic panel here. I think it must be a, a collage panel. At the bottom of it, the last panel on that page, you get a look at, I guess it's New York City, uh, but it looks like a collage, doesn't it? What page are you on, sorry? So 412. 412. Yeah, it looks like it could be um, a photograph that mm -hmm. was uh, inked over, or maybe just like a, a photo stat of a, of a photograph. But yeah, I've seen that kind of style before. Yeah, very, very cool. Yeah, it gives yeah. a good kind of a, the dirty look of New York. I love that about these issues from the 70s. Um, you get a real time capsule about, and I don't know if New York City actually was like that, but <laughs> it certainly was not an inviting place. I know that because I what I can't remember what episode I was doing this. Uh, I was talking to somebody about. Oh, I think it was maybe a New Mutants episode, uh, where they were in New York and the artist had drawn Times Square, but it was filled with adult stores and like signs mm -hmm. that say XXX and like that was. And then I was, so I was looking at because I didn't I don't know anything about New York really. Uh, I was looking reading up on it and yeah, it was a very seedy place mm. back back before the 1980s and such. So. <laughs> Very, uh, yeah, it is a kind of a dirty, dirty, grimy look to it, which is appropriate for this time, I think. Great little time capsule. Yep. 
Shang-Chi ultimately gets the gems off uh, Falu Shui and destroys them. Right. That's including this particular issue. But I'm sure that's not going to be the last we see of her. No, not at all. Yeah. Well, let's keep on going. Oh, oh actually, do you, what do you think of the um, what do you think of like the redemption of Shadowstalker in this issue? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm down with it. Um, <laughs> I can't even I can't. I'm sure he peers again, but he's not a consistent presence going forward. Um, Which is probably fine because he is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but it well, was yeah, there's they, gonna be no shortage of ridiculous villains <laughs> <laughs> for the future. Razor Fist, for example. Oh, Razor oh, Fist. Fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I read him. I think his first appearance is in Iron Fist, so I've read his his appearances before. <laughs> okay, so Giant Size Master of Kung Fu number four. Why a Tiger Claw? Mm. This one is, is another triple size issue, uh, but it can be summed up fairly easily. After foiling a bank robbery, Shang-Chi and a cab driver follow the robbers to Tiger Claw, a person from Shang-Chi's past. The cab driver is oh. obviously supposed to be Groucho Marx and uh, is oh. <laughs> so out of place in this issue. <laughs> Rufus T. Hackstabber. Hackstabber. Um, my first encounter with Rufus T. Hackstabber was in The Defenders. And I remember reading that. I was like, what in the world? What are they thinking? By, are they thinking they're appealing to the young crowd by dragging up this character from the 1920s and throwing him in here? Um, I don't know. He's awful. He's positively awful in this issue. What are your impressions? Did, did, he, did he appeal to you in the least? Um, well, I thought some of his lines were funny, but it did seem so out of place. It They could have easily gone without the Groucho Marx character and done the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's just so over the top. Because it's Groucho Marx, there's definitely the 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 pressure i think that doug mensch had to like make all of his lines funny to make him to make him very very comedic and um and play up that aspect of him and it doesn't work for this issue because we have not seen anything like this in the book so far Mm -hmm. so it's just out of left field and it's not the last time he's going to make an appearance in this particular um series in fact later on he's going to appear and he's going to be joined by another character, Quigley J. Warmflash, who is a <laughs> W.C. Fields um, imitation oh, as well. Weird. Okay. Oh, yeah. The one time I did kind of have a little slight chuckle with the humor was on uh, 440, where they almost run over an old lady. Yeah. <laughs> that's that, that, I was like, all right, that, that's a little funny. <laughs> but oof, otherwise, it's I just found it so cringeworthy. Now, I just discovered a channel on my Roku that plays a whole bunch of old shows, and I've been watching episodes of You Bet Your Life, which was Groucho okay. Marx's uh, uh, game show that he mm-hmm. hosted. And he's great. I mean, I like the, the old Marx Brothers movies, and um, and he's really, really funny. So I love... Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's great. Um, but it just seems forced in this one yeah it totally does yeah. yeah my only experience with groucho marx is recently i was at my in-laws house and they love their old movies and they had one of them on and i found his humor to be so mean-spirited as he's just messing with with people for no reason cutting right. their ties off and yeah well and that's just a, an aspect of the screwball comedy of yeah. the 1930s yeah. the, that's uh and that's that is definitely his style of humor 
and it's when in the in you bet your life he's interacting with just random people who are not it's not scripted because they're just the participants of the game show and he can be a little tongue-in-cheek and a little bit snarky with them um but Mm -hmm. i think they understand his his brand of humor and so it's it's fine and he's he's just he's funny he's quick on his feet he's a good comedian um good stand-up and uh, and I do and I do like him so, <laughs> but uh, right. but but you know not everybody can pull off Groucho Marx style humor if you're not Groucho Marx yourself. So, mm. but enough yeah, about I, him. I think we should move on to the the actual story here. Yeah, yeah, the actual story. Um, well, we get another boss fight or um, uh, villain of the week, kung fu villain of the week, and this time we get Tiger Claw. Yeah. Who has that um, Ben Franklin haircut, the bald with the long hair sort of look that several people in Marvel Comics in the 1970s had. Was that, I wonder if that was a thing. That bald guy started growing their hair long in the 70s. Maybe. Um, I don't know. Um, I think of like the Red Ghost <laughs> right. who had that disco phase of <laughs> in the 70s as well. But um, yeah, so we get a few pages where he's we're shown just how tough he is. Page uh, 454, for example, as he beats up a whole bunch of random guys. Yeah. But when he actually fights Shang Chi, it is there's not much to that fight. Shang Chi mauls him pretty quickly, um, kicking the gloves off him. Is I guess his big thing is that he has gloves with uh, claws onto it, not too dissimilar from Wolverine. Um, but doesn't pose much of a threat to Shang-Chi. Nope. As, uh, he gets thoroughly defeated. There Keith are... Pollard. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Keith Pollard does the art here. Yep. And he does the, he does a better job than I've seen him do in Shang-Chi issues before. Um, there is a lot more flow to the action here. Um, it's interesting some of his choices for action as well. And if you go to page um, 450... And you mm-hmm. see that that column of panels where Shang stays still and only his arms are moving. That is not a choice that Paul Gulesi would make in a million years. No. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting to see different artists take different take on the way Shang-Chi uh, attempts to fight. Interestingly enough, though, that column, that isn't... Uh, something that you would never see in a kung fu movie. There's, right. That's one of those things that you they oftentimes play up. The guy who's so darn good, he doesn't even have to move. Yes. He just kind of swings his arm back and forth, block and, and, and strike, block, strike. Absolutely. So yeah, there is that. We see a good example of his fighting in uh, 466 and 467 as well, this time using a combination of staff as well as, as punching. But again, Pollard can't help but make that final blow a traditional Western fighting style blow right. in the middle of um, 467, where it's just some kind of right right cross that just blasts uh, Tiger Claw out. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. And so look at the top page here. I'm um, sorry, the top tier of the same page on 467, where Shang punches Tiger Claw in the face two times. And think back to the Dan Adkins inks mm. where he would add the motion lines in the backgrounds to indicate the flash mm-hmm. of light. But in, in this case, Keith Pollard makes um, the the flash of light obstruct the face of Tiger Claw. So interesting yeah, there. So do you think in the original art then that the face actually was there, like let's say on the top um, right-hand panel? No, I think that uh, I think that Keith Pollard dictated that it would be obscured like that. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think this is the this is the pencil's choice in this one. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, what else do I have to say about this one? There's no Fu Manchu or or Fa Lu Sui in this issue at all. 
um, so that's an interesting thing for especially for the giants. Oh, oh no, no, sorry, I'm not thinking yeah, of the range issues. Yeah, they actually we do see. In fact, I was going to make a note of how weird um, Fu Manchu's face looks on page. Oh, I've lost it. On page four fifty-seven, um, one thing that caught my eye with Fu Manchu. So in the Sax Romer books, as well as the Boris Karloff movie, one of the things they play off of is how women are very uh, – he controls women's sexuality. Yeah. And in the upper left-hand panel, you see this very Western girl of wearing kind of like, I guess, hippie clothes of the time Yeah. Um, right next to him. And it's, it's kind of suggestive of that sort of sexuality of Fu Manchu. Right. Yeah, we do see that often. There's another one where um, maybe, uh, maybe it was in the previous giant size issue where there's just a woman on a bed kind of just mm-hmm. resting there as they're having their conversation. Um, but I guess they do. I wonder if they play that up more in the magazine in the Deadly Hands because they can get away with a little bit more with the without the code. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Well, that takes us to the end of the, the, the Master Kung Fu issues. And mm-hmm. there is one story here tacked onto the end of this epic collection as a bonus, which is one story from Iron Man Annual Number Four, and it's called Death Lair, and it's just about midnight, and it's a it's, a, it's just a little solo story about talking about him and uh, kind of the yeah, his past. It's interesting that it's written by Roger Stern. It's not even written by Doug Mensch. Yeah. Um, so it seems. And odd that they would recall a character who appeared briefly four years ago and was died and was killed in that to suddenly appear here. Um, well, did you read the th- the little text at the top of this page? At the top oh, of the first page, not. it says here in 1976, Marvel commissioned a series of five to six page backup stories to break in rookie talent and relieve deadline pressure when regular creative teams ran late. The initiative was short-lived, and many of the backup stories, including this Midnight Tale from August 1977's Iron Man Annual Number 4, saw print a year or more after their completion. So this is possibly Roger Stern's first story for Marvel. Interesting. And in fact, first story in comics, because he only started, uh, like his credits date back to about 77, 78, which is about this time right here. And if this one was written a year before that, 1976, this is potentially one of his very, very first stories. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't recognize any of the other creatives on this, Jeff Acklin or Don Newton. Yeah, I don't, rec- yeah, I don't know them either. Mm. Um, essentially, the story here is that Midnight is sent to recruit a Vietnamese scientist villain named Halfface. Yep. <laughs> I presume that's because the lower half of his face is encased in metal, blown up, I suppose. Is he a, do you know if he is an Iron Man villain or was a villain have, or anything else before? I have no idea. I didn't look him up. I figured he was just a kind of a one-time, one-shot guy because I'd never heard of him before, but it's possible. I should have looked him up. That was, uh... Well, it looks like there's a, a note to Tales of Suspense 92 through 94. Oh, okay. Well, then that, I guess that's pretty definitive then. Yeah. Um, I love, uh, yeah, so essentially he goes to try to recruit him, um, and uh, Halfface does not want any part of being part of Fu Manchu's organization, and uh, they kind of go their own ways at the end. One thing I thought was fun about this issue, on page 472, uh, to fire a grappling hook to the next building, he fires what looks like a bazooka. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Launches <laughs> <laughs> this grappling hook. It's extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And I, I wonder, wonder if that, that grappling hook went. <laughs> that's just the artist is like, I don't know what a grappling hook looks like. 
I'll just draw this. Yeah, enormous. Um, the art's actually really good, I think, here. Yeah, he does well, especially because this character is all black, so it's hard to have definition in the um, in just the positions. Like if you if you have your hand going across a black the black chest, then the hand is obscured. Mm-hmm. So you have to play with the lighting and be very specific about the way you're posing your character. And I think this person does a good job, especially yeah. if this is rookie talent. Mm. Yeah. And one thing I think I thought was kind of fun about the art too is on the uh, last of the pages, on four seventy four. On the middle panel, it actually looks like we're getting lines of movement from his head, but you wonder how that is possible given <laughs> that half face is lower <laughs> face and neck is covered in this. But it looks like he's taking a quick, quick, quick uh, look, look to around. The left. Yeah, it does look yeah. like that. But and the brace makes me think like his neck is broken or something. Mm, so yeah, he be. wouldn't be swinging his head around if that's the case. But <laughs> that's funny. Fun, uh, fun little bit of inclusion there. Yep. Uh, as far as bonus features go. Um, we only have a lot of house ads mm-hmm. and um, some stuff from Foom magazine. That- That's fantastic. That one um, where they do the feminization of... Yeah. <laughs> Shang so it's a bird Shi. cover. <laughs> <laughs> Mistress of Kung Fu. And in, in Su Manchu and Iron Sis. <laughs> yep, that's funny. And it's drawn by John Byrne, so it's it's beautiful art. Yep, uh, that's that, that's great. It's really funny. Got the alternate cover the on the the last page there of uh, fighting Black Tar. I guess that's from the second issue. So it would be um, uh, was that Marvel Presents fifteen or sixteen or something like that? Um, special Marvel that's edition. Right. Special that's Marvel right. edition or something. And yeah, by uh, Jim Starlin. So it's nice to see to see more of his stuff. I think I prefer that last cover to the first one, or to the one they actually used. Yeah, it. it uh, hold on, let me get, go back to that so I can see it. Number seventeen. Oh yeah, I wonder why they changed that. They made Black Tar larger, mm-hmm. more menacing. I m- maybe it made wanted they wanted to make it look like they were engaged in closer combat or something. Yeah. It looks, this looks great when he's flying through these three guys who are just tumbling yeah. under to deliver both a kick, and it looks like he's about to deliver a punch as well. So, great cover. Now, who does the cover? The actual cover to number seventeen, because it doesn't look like Jim Starlin. Hmm. Same. Not sure who that is. Yeah, I don't know either. They got someone else to do it. The other, the only other bonus feature I want to mention is that there's a. Uh, they took a. They don't usually print letter pages um, in in these books here, but they have the letter page for Marvel special, a special Marvel edition number 15 because it wasn't actually letters, it was an editorial um, from, from Roy Thomas and Steve Englehart. Mm-hmm. So if you want to read a little bit about what Steve Englehart had to say about, um, about just the creation of, of uh, Shang-Chi, then, then definitely take a, a read of this because there's uh, just a, a nice story about how he, how he came, into the, came into doing this title. Fantastic. Ernie Chan, that's who did uh, Marvel Special Edition number 17. Okay, yeah, that's cool. Or Master of Kung Fu uh, 17. At that point, it was Master of Kung Fu. Right. Okay, well, there we go. We've done this whole book now, and uh, uh, what another good episode, another good conversation with you. So I thanks thanks again for tackling this, this great book with me. I'm looking forward to our conversation about Volume 2. Great. Yeah, look forward to that as well. So next time that you're on the show, Jason, why don't we loop back to Defenders and pick up where we left off, which was the beginning of the new Defenders. 
and, and tackle that volume. That sounds great. And um, I hope I'm not scaring people away by saying the new defenders. There's actually some quality there. You won't be disappointed. Okay. Well, I won't be disappointed in our conversation because I love what we end up talking about, whether the material is good or bad. So I, and this is a, mater- a period of the defenders. Well, I mean, I've never read any defenders. So I, I've only heard people talk about new defenders. And I'll be very interested to hear what your thoughts are as well, um, along with the the Beauty and the Beast miniseries and the Iceman miniseries. So those are both included in this volume as well. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak to the quality of that. Okay. But. Perfect. Fantastic. Uh, everybody, you should check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, join our Facebook group, which is if you just search for Epic Collections, you can find us on Facebook and uh, become a patron of our Patreon at patreon.com slash thunderquack. We are part of the Thunderquack Podcast Network. And other than that, thanks again, Jason, and we will see everybody on the next episode. Take care. Take care.